The Smiley Professionals Network presents its first podcast, The Smiley Connection. We'll speak with professionals from all walks of life and across all industries to bring you compelling stories about their career journeys. We'll laugh, we'll learn, and we'll connect. Who knows, you may find your next Smiley Connection on our show. Yalimadad and hello to everyone. It's Reem Merchant, your host. And on today's show, we have Afzal Habib. Afzal is the co-founder of a social enterprise named Kidogo that serves quality childcare in East Africa. Kidogo impacts over 18,000 kids and has 800 franchises over Kenya. Today, he will talk about his interesting journey from a consulting firm to entrepreneurship and onwards to managing community-focused poverty programs. Career switches and diversity in the portfolio of work a person is doing has become a routine situation for professionals in today's world. You've had a diverse career path, ranging from being a consultant at the Boston Consulting Group, that's one of the leading consulting firms in the world, to being a co-founder of a social enterprise that focuses on childcare in East Africa. And then from there, you went to work with Poverty Alleviation Project or Poverty Elimination for a global community. So can you walk us through your professional journey and what motivated you to transition to these career decisions? Sure, yeah, happy to. Um, so, so I was born and raised here in Toronto. And my dad was from Karachi, my mom from Bea, Tanzania. And so I grew up very much interested in working in uh, less developed parts of the world and social impact that for me from a very young age was important. Um, but I also had an interest in a knack for business. And so I decided to go to university for international business because I felt like it combined the international aspect that I was looking for with um kind of the business area, which I was most interested in. And coming out of my business degree, uh, I landed a job with the Boston Consulting Group, which I think if you would have asked me going in, wasn't my idea of what I wanted to do next. But I think it really checked two boxes for me. The first was, it's a intense training ground to build your skills, to build your experience. Um, but also it's a well-known uh, and prestigious brand, kind of the way that we talk about a Google or Facebook in today's day and age. I think BCG for me was very much a, a kind of resume builder and opened many doors for me. I think when people see a, a big brand on your resume, sometimes that opens doors that you may not have opened otherwise. And so um, as many who go into consulting, I didn't really have an intention of staying long-term or, or becoming a partner, but I thought it was a good launching pad for my career. And I thought that the next step for me after that would have been to go into a master's or an MBA program, and then from there would go into social enterprise, which is really where my passion was sitting. Uh, but before I even looked into schools or applied, I got a call from a friend um, who now, full disclosure, is my wife, Sabrina. And Sabrina was on an internship with the Aga Khan Foundation and the Canadian government uh, doing international development work and healthcare work in Kenya. And she had come across this really um, sad and significant issue of a lack of childcare in Kenya's urban slums. So 
basically um, women who had to go to work to put food on the table didn't really have licensed, quality, affordable childcare options for where to leave their children. And so many women were leaving their children at home alone or pulling an older daughter out of school, you know, nine or 10 year old daughter out of school to take care of the younger child. Uh, or in the best case scenario, they would use one of these unlicensed informal daycares uh, in, the, in the slum. They called them baby cares. And Sabrina had a chance to go visit some of these baby cares and was just appalled by the quality and the fact that children in those centers were stunted and, and malnourished and just developmentally off track. And I think we had been hearing a lot from Azrimam at that time about ECD, early childhood development. And so for both of us, I think that kind of piqued our interest. And we had this long conversation, maybe an hour long conversation, you know, um, on WhatsApp or BBM or whatever was the platform at the time. And I was sitting in some boardroom in Toronto and she was on this Matatu in, in uh, Nairobi. And at the end of that conversation, we decided we wanted to do something about it. And that really is what really led us to found Kidogo. So we spent the next year doing some research, writing a business plan. And eventually I took a leave of absence from BCG to go and test out the business plan on the ground in Kenya. And so during the daytime, I was working with an organization called Acumen, which is impact investing. And in the evenings and weekends, we were all focused on testing and validating this business plan for Kidogo. And so that eventually led us to get a grant to start up. And eventually I ended up, leave, ended up leaving BCG officially to do that work with Sabrina. And over the last seven years as co-founders and co-CEOs, we've been scaling up Kidogo. Uh, and then during that period, uh, I had been reached out to by the Leaders International Forum, the LIF, uh, to do a TKN project, a time and knowledge Nazrana project um, uh, focused around poverty alleviation. And basically... The Jamaat had been doing a lot of work on poverty alleviation and, and uh, under Molina Hazrimam's vision. And uh, there was a desire to formalize and, and you know, put in place a, a robust strategy for how to do that work better and to do it larger. And so for a number of years on and off, I had worked as a TKN on this project around the poverty alleviation agenda. And after the Diamond Jubilee, one of our major recommendations that was approved by Hazri Mum was to set up a, a global office to be staffed with development potential uh, professionals, development professionals, to really coordinate and support the poverty alleviation efforts of the various national councils. And um, that strategy was approved. And so Azrimam created that office. And two years ago, I was recruited to join that same team uh, as the strategy and operations manager. And, and we've been working on scaling and uh, professionalizing the poverty elimination programs globally as a result. A social enterprise is not an easy choice. And it is pretty unconventional when you're thinking about career switches. Can you talk a little bit more about Kidogo? What's your vision, your goals with Kidogo? Yeah, so um, Kidogo, uh, when we started, I think, was really about, I don't, I don't, actually, I don't even know if we knew the scale and the size uh, of the impact that we could have. Um, 
I think we had this idea that early childhood development was important and that a lot of organizations had done work in preschool and pre-primary education, but nobody was really talking about the first two, two or three years of life, which is really where a lot of development happens. And so uh, we saw an opportunity, I think, to merge my passion of social enterprise with this problem that Sabrina found around childcare and try to find a kind of an innovative business model to attack that issue. And, and for me, that was really an exciting prospect and, and one we kind of have been playing out over the last number of years. I think originally the goal was, you know, can we build something that's sustainable, that's scalable, can reach, you know, 10,000 kids uh, across Kenya and, and really deliver quality childcare. And when we talked about quality, we meant would we put our own child into that center? That was kind of the benchmark that we had. And we remember, I remember there was this phone call from one of our funders very early on. And she said, what's the big goal? What's your, you know, what is that number that you're going to get to? And we said, maybe we'll get to 10,000 kids. And what was bizarre was about two years ago, Sabrina and I were doing some number crunching and we realized we were at 11,000 kids. And I don't think that it ever really processed to us that, you know, this big vision of ours was coming to fruition, but also now that it still didn't feel big enough. No matter how big we were growing the organization, there was always more kids, always more need uh, that we wanted to fill. So, you know, as of today, Kidogo is doing exceptionally well. We have 700 franchise daycare centers. We serve 17,000 children every day uh, with quality childcare. We have over 100 employees in Kenya and we're growing rapidly. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm still on the board of directors, but Sabrina is really the one leading the charge as CEO on Kidogo now. But I often joke that she was just waiting for me to leave so that she could really scale it up. Um, but I think that the scale for me is, while incredible, it's it's actually more the systems change work now that has me more interested. Um, when we started, childcare wasn't on the map. It wasn't on the agenda for anybody. And maybe people were talking about ECD, but they really meant preschool years, right? Three to five years old, math language, but zero to three is where all the brain development was happening and nobody was really talking about that. And most kids were sitting in informal care. And just in the last two to three years, I think after many, many years of us barking and, and you know talking about this, uh, yelling about this at the, at the top of our lungs, we've really been able to put childcare on the map, both in Kenya, but also at a global level. Um, Sabrina spoke at the White House earlier uh, last year and met with Melinda Gates. And now Melinda Gates is talking about Kidogo publicly. Um, it's really gaining quite a bit of momentum. And as a result, uh, in 2022, the World Bank announced that they were going to start uh, a fund, a $150 million fund, specifically to support low and middle income countries to invest in improving childcare in their countries. And so for me, that's really the type of change that we've been able to spur. It's not single-handed. There's a lot of people involved. There's a lot of organizations involved in that. But being part of that kind of movement towards putting childcare on the agenda is really where I see um, Kidogo's biggest success and, and inshallah in the future where we will continue to, to make a dent. 
The vision and what you've managed to achieve with Kidogo is truly incredible, especially considering that you built this foundation ground up. What have your key learnings been in establishing this process from scratch? Um yeah, starting starting something from scratch is um for me a very exciting journey and I think that you know there are some people who are born entrepreneurs and there are some people who are made entrepreneurs uh, or learn entrepreneurship and I think that there are some who perhaps never want to touch entrepreneurship but for me I think I was somebody who innately loved the idea of effectively finding a problem and solving it I think that's what entrepreneurship comes down to it's a it's a problem problem solving mechanism um and so I think you know, I, I think if I was to summarize two or three big lessons I've learned in doing the startup phase and, and starting and growing an organization, one would definitely be persistence and grit. Um, you face hurdles and challenges every single day. And I think if you talk to anybody who's started and grown an organization, whether, you know, the end result was successful or not, ultimately it was it's seen as a roller coaster. Um, it really is a roller coaster. You have ups and downs every single day that make the word work very difficult um, to continue at and to continue pushing over a long period of time. But that's the only thing that really, I think, uh, leads to a successful outcome. Um, I think that there's an element of luck in a lot of this. And I don't mean luck in like the kind of cross your fingers way, but more of, you know, are you able to time, are, are you entering a market at the right time? Do the stars line up in the right way? Do you find that right funder at the right moment that opens doors for you? Like there's a lot of things that you perhaps can't plan for. Um, but when you see an opportunity, you have to be nimble and you have to be open and willing to um, jump on those kinds of things. And then I think the third thing that I would say is, um, you know, my experience in this startup world has been that enterprises are dynamic by default. Um, when we started, the most important thing was this idea of like being able to jump on an opportunity and to spot an opportunity. And we were iterating so quickly, we were moving really, really fast. And about three or four years in, we actually had to evolve as an organization. There were things that we were doing as a startup that we couldn't do, you know, as we got bigger, as we started having, you know, when we started, we were employing people kind of under the table and we, you know, we're paying people in cash and you're doing things that just, just to get the work going. And as you grow, as you become more formal, you need to actually formalize your systems and your structures. And so the organization has to evolve. The culture of the organization evolves. The people that you bring into the organization evolve. And you as a leader also need to evolve. You may be the right person for a moment in time, but you may not be the right person for the full duration. And so you know, Sabrina and I often talk about how I was the right guy to start the organization, but she was the right person to scale the organization. And I think that's indicative of the different skill sets and different interests we have. That's amazing. So from Kidogo, you've now used all those experiences and skills you've gained to work with poverty alleviation. 
Considering that poverty and illiteracy are the bane of human existence, it is pretty impactful and impressive the work that you're doing. Can you talk a bit more about your work with poverty alleviation? One of Maulana Hazrimam's vision is to work for poverty alleviation and this team called COPE that is Central Office for Poverty Elimination is putting this plan to action. Can you share some of your experiences with COPE? Yeah, sure. Um so I you know I think poverty has been a clear priority for Hazrimam for decades. Um both within the Jamaat, but also more broadly, quality of life improvement, um, development, those are things that have always been on the radar and, and poverty in particular. I think if you look at the historical efforts that have been undertaken, um, there are those that have been led by the AKDN, the Aga Khan Development Network, that have been done more at a community or a village level or a national level uh, and are functional. They, you know, they're, they're focused on improving health at a national level or at a regional level or focused on education at a national or regional level um, and also have been non-denominational in their focus. So they haven't focused on the Jamaat, but generally, you know, parts of the world where the Jamaat lives. I think if you look at those efforts that have been specifically focused on the Jamaat and poverty within the Jamaat, um, the Ismaili community, they've been led primarily by our national councils and have been really about supporting individual families that are going through crisis periods, that are going through moments of really distress, deep distress. And um, because our or our institutions have been largely voluntary, you know, they haven't been able to scale those efforts substantially or focus on you know a very forward-looking approach where we help families to look to the future and set themselves up to be resilient to shocks in the future. We've really been about you know solving a crisis moment problem, and so. For, for us, I think what councils have been really great at and really is really leveraging the Jamaat, the murid to murid relationship, that brother-sister relationship in a way that I think traditional development agencies, whether that be AKDN or United Nations types organizations or small NGOs have perhaps not been able to do as well as we have because we have this faith element and we have, you know, farmans that we, we, we rely upon and, and such. And so the work that we've been doing really in the past two to three years is to been match up some of those differences and, and strengths between what the AKDN brings and what the Jamaat and National Councils bring and formalizing and accelerating the efforts of the National Councils. So the flagship program that we've been working on is called the Family Development Program, and it's being implemented by almost every National Council uh, around the world. And really the focus of that is working with families to set and achieve their goals and they do that primarily by formalizing the role that volunteers play through professional case management and uh, what we call our family mentors. And those people are there to provide support to families and really leverage this Jamaat helping Jamaat model. Um, 
there's a lot of components to it. I don't want to go through all of them, you know, for the, for the, I could talk about this for hours and hours, but I feel like the podcast might get long. Um, but I think ultimately what it comes down to is, is really working with families against a plan. What is our plan for the future? How do we build ourselves towards some level of resiliency and then equipping national councils with the human resources, the financial resources and the technical expertise they need to be able to implement those plans alongside the family and really work together, uh, leveraging the Jamaat, helping Jamaat uh, model. Working in a professional consulting firm, then a social enterprise, and then moving on to sharing your experiences and skills with an organization that works in collaboration with different national councils to alleviate poverty. All of these are very impactful, yet diverse forms of experiences for an individual. What have your observations and learnings been from these different forms of work experiences? Yeah, it's a good question. I think... Um, I think the differences in all of the experiences are really, um, they have to do with kind of who you work for, <laughs> who is your, who is your constituent, who is your customer. It's really about stakeholders and that, that constellation of stakeholders that is around you uh, in these different areas. When I was working at the Boston Consulting Group, we were effectively working for clients. The clients are the ones that pay the consulting firm and we are not the implementer at the end of the day. We are an organization that comes in and looks at the data, does some you know, analysis, and then comes back to you with recommendations in a, in a PowerPoint deck. And we then kind of hand the PowerPoint deck and the knowledge that you know we've developed to the client and it's up to them to decide how much to implement, how fast to implement, what to implement, what not to implement. And so I think in that context, you become a bit of a sales mechanism because you have to sell your recommendations. You have to be you know, convincing people on a regular basis. When I moved to the startup world, the biggest difference was I didn't have anybody that I reported to, at least at the beginning. We were kind of making the decision with ourselves. We were the implementers. And so if we made a decision on Wednesday, we implemented on Thursday. It was like, you can move quickly. There was nobody to convince. As an entrepreneur, you kind of have the ability to kind of move quickly. And the only people you need to sell are is your team. Right, getting the, the team on board and everybody getting on the same page saying, here's what we're going to do and here's why we're going to do it. And do we see any concerns with this and then go. Um, and so there was nobody to point the blame at other than yourself if you made a mistake, I think also. And then I think now moving to kind of the community aspect, working within our faith community, I think the biggest difference there is, uh, you know, I, I sit in a position that has visibility to what 21 different national councils are doing, but the national councils are really the implementers. And so it's kind of a step, you know, closer to that other corporate model where you have a lot more of an advisory role and a lot more of a convincing role, but we also play some, uh, you know, approval role in terms of budgets. And so, you know, how how much hard power or soft power do you have as you make decisions? I think all of that changes when you move across these different areas and who ultimately are you accountable to and, and making um, decisions or recommendations uh, to. 
Knowing your audience is key to successful conversations and such conversations can bring an idea to life. Talking about ideas. A lot of people ideate about entrepreneurship but are uncertain and even fearful about taking the leap. What has your motivation been when you were faced with uncertainty? So I think entrepreneurs come out of two very different situations. This is my 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 own perspective. So my grandpa was an entrepreneur in back in Karachi and in Dhaka. He, you know, opened random stalls and dukas, you know, selling jewelry here or doing, you know, shoe repairs or watch repairs or things like that. And I think I call him an entrepreneur, but I think he was a necessity entrepreneur. He was an entrepreneur because there weren't he didn't have an education and there weren't employers there waiting to employ people. And so he had to hustle to start something, to earn money, to put food on the table. I also I think, you know, would call myself an entrepreneur but from a very different perspective. I grew up in Canada. I had access to good education and good healthcare through our public system. My parents both had two full-time jobs. You know, we were middle class, but we were well enough set up. And I never really needed or wanted for anything too much in my life. And I think what that meant was that I had a bit of a safety net. Um, you know, BCG having worked at BCG I had a bit of a savings and also I knew that if my attempt at starting Kidogo um, I enterprise if it didn't work worst case scenario I would close down the business and I would move home and I would live in my parents basement for a year and figure out what was next or look for my new job but I wouldn't you know I wouldn't starve as a result of this the the failure of the business I think that's very different from the mentality that my grandfather my grandfather my grandfather got into entrepreneurship based upon. And so I think that entrepreneurship isn't necessarily the 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 silver bullet for everybody. I think our parents historically have pushed us, pushed us in our community towards professions because they are stable and they are secure, be a lawyer, be a lawyer, be a doctor, but because those are secure professions whereas entrepreneurship is not. But I think that you know where you have a safety net where you have a little bit of an ability to try something and you've got an idea i think there's lots and lots of interesting problems to be solved and as i said before i think entrepreneurship is about solving problems and so if there's a problem you feel really passionate about and if there is an idea you have and you have the means to be able to to you know take a risk that I've found that risk taking is valuable whether or not the enterprise is successful you learn more in the journey than you do by where you end up and so I would encourage those who have the ability to and have the flexibility and and the safety net to be able to do that to to do so That is a very wise suggestion a safety net when you can get it is never a bad idea Based on your experiences, what message would you like to give our students or young professionals or anyone who is planning to take that leap of faith by doing something different? Maybe changing careers or planning to switch to a different sector of the industry? Yeah, this is a great question. Um So I'm probably going to I'm I'm going to present what I think might be an unpopular opinion here, which is I think that um 
I think transferable skills are key. Uh, in my career so far, uh, I don't think you could take the key skills that I have and, you know, I don't have any specific qualifications or certificates or, you know, diplomas that make me, um, you know, qualified, quote unquote, to do my job. It's not that somebody has been hiring me against some kind of qualification. Uh, ultimately, I think the most valuable skill sets I've had are those that are kind of more soft skills, quote unquote. Um, it's a communication skill, right? How do you communicate complex ideas in a simple way? How do you bring people along persuasion techniques? Um, how do you uh, work together to design strategy and, and workshop things? Like it's, it's like workshopping skills. Very few of those things have a certificate that's, you know, assigned to it. And I think a lot of times, probably less so in North America or in Europe, but when I look at youth in our Jamaat globally, we're always trying to figure out, okay, what's the certificate that gets you the job? What's the um, qualification that gets you the job? And, and my perspective is that going forward, those things will become less and less valuable as knowledge is more readily available online. You can get a certificate in data science in two weeks on edX or on Coursera. Um, so if you need a technical skill set, you could learn that very quickly where it's relevant to your job. But I think that the soft skills, the things that you learn through experience, through starting your own business, through working in different industries or sectors, um, through you know doing projects outside, doing a TKN project, those transferable skills that you learn are infinitely more valuable, I think, than any specific qualification, um, because qualifications are things you can accumulate as you need them. Um, and I think the more that you can mix those things, having a technical skill set in a certain area. So I'm kind of, you know, I come from a business background, but I don't have a master's degree. I don't have an MBA, uh, but I have a business background. And the more I can combine that with now experience in development, in social enterprise, in poverty alleviation, I have a different perspective on things than most development professionals and most business people would. And so I think the more that you can get different experiences that are um, cross-functional, I would say, uh, the more unique your specific value add to any one project or post is going to be. That makes a lot of sense. Transferable skills are a way for you to show that you can do the job, even if you aren't the perfect match for the job description. Therefore, the more relevant skills that you have, the more likely you'll be able to land the job. Transferable skills can highlight your potential to be an asset to a company or organization, which is really the key to crack your way in. Lastly, would you like to recommend any interesting books or podcast or any other interesting informative content to our audience? Yeah, um, good question. So I, um, I think there's three sources that I really like uh, and for different reasons. One is uh, the podcast called The Daily by the New York Times. I listen to it religiously. Every, every single day I listen to The Daily. Uh, it goes into a lot of depth on world issues, a little bit American-centric, but still um, tends to talk about global issues uh, and, and explains them in some level of depth. The other one is The Economist, 
The Economist magazine. Uh, I I never really liked it when I was in business because it felt a little too politics, a little too global. But now that I work in this particular work of poverty alleviation and, and during my time at, in, at Kidogo, running Kidogo, uh, I think what The Economist provides is a robust, detailed analysis on like geopolitical issues and that, that may not be relevant for everybody but i love it um and then the last one is the harvard business review which uh as a magazine i think is interesting in exploring new ideas methodologies um, business tools etc thanks so much for listening to this episode of the smiley connection if you'd like to connect with Afzal Habib or learn more about any of the resources he mentioned, check out the show notes. And if you're enjoying the show so far, please give us a review and a five-star rating on the Apple or Google podcast apps. It takes less than five minutes to do that compared to the hours of work that goes into each podcast episode. So we'd be grateful for your time and support. We'd also love to hear your feedback. Reach out to us at ipnpodcast at ipnonline.net. This episode was produced by me and edited by the talented Kes Ali. Marketing for this episode was carried out by the stellar Amal Musa. Karim Javed and Dilshad Zaveri, our amazing relationship management team, were extremely instrumental in helping the research and report of this episode. Our cover art is designed by the skilled Shakil Muhammad. Also, many thanks to Zoha Momin, the head of strategic initiatives at IPN.